looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and bringing you the most objective and most entertaining 49ers podcast out there because we don't just talk 49ers, we also talk timely pop culture topics. And today we have a great show for you. We're going to be talking about 49ers mandatory minicamp concluding. A couple players at the 49ers worked out. We have Debo Samuel reviewing his 2022 tape. He was not happy with that. What Pro Football Focus had to say about McCaffrey, Kittle, Debo, and more going into the season where they were ranked overall in the NFL. And Anthony, running back coach Anthony Lynn has his running backs now working on pass catching. So it's not only McCaffrey being a threat out of the backfield. When we transition to the plus section, game three of the NBA Finals was last night. We'll talk about that. Some baseball talk. Pitcher Jacob deGrom of the Texas Rangers hurt having to go undergo full-blown Tommy John surgery. We'll talk about baseball salary disparity and comparisons, how much worse it's gotten over time. The 16th season of my favorite comedy, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, kicked off last night. We'll talk about that. And we'll follow it up with a moron who paid over $100,000 to have his legs lengthened. But as always, it starts with the Niners, so let's jump right in. Let's talk Niners! So let's start with Brock Purdy and his recovery. So it was reported that Purdy was throwing without pain in minicamp. So let's explain what that means. He was lobbing the ball the way a five-year-old might lob a Nerf football to you from maybe five feet away as you sit on the couch and they throw awkwardly looking spirals. But that's part of his rehab, right? This is what he needs to do. The throwing without pain part is great. If he was in pain, do you think they would report it? Probably not. And from a timeline perspective, the 49ers are anticipating full clearance for him, no restrictions, around August 21st, which would be 20 days before week one. So about three weeks before playing at the Steelers to open up their season. Reasons for optimism. If you're a Purdy fan, if you're not some sort of Purdy hater or pro Lance person or pro Darnold person, we all should be pro best quarterback person. And 49er social media, 49er Twitter, there is definitely a divide between people who are pro Purdy and pro Lance. And the pro Lance people just keep saying, well, he hasn't been given a shot. He hasn't been given a shot. You know, he should be the starter. They traded up for him. Purdy's hurt, et cetera, et cetera. To which my mental rebuke, because I'm not going to engage with anyone more or less on social media because there a lot of people are, are set in their ways and morons. And I guess I'm set in my ways also, but I'm, I try to come from a very objective point of view. And the most objective way I can think about or look at this quarterback situation is who has put the best tape out there, the best film out there in their short careers. Is it Brock Purdy or is it, Trey Lance. And if you want to throw Sam Darnold into the mix too, he has a lot more experience in both of those two quarterbacks in two different systems, one with the Jets, one with the Panthers, and now learning the 49ers offense. So I don't want to say he's an aside, but not as the argument isn't Purdy, Lance, or Darnold. It's Purdy or Lance. And Darnold still may be a dark horse that could sneak into the number two position or number one if. Purdy's arm is not ready for week one. 
if you can go on nothing other than the tape, the film, the performance, it's clearly Brock Purdy. How many consecutive games did he win? The minute he got on the field, their offense was scoring over 30 points a game. Yes, certain fans, uh, you know, this isn't a a black or, or white thing, but I could definitely tell on Twitter that more people of color are pulling more for Trey Lance, and that's totally fine. But the unfortunate thing here is it's a performance based business, right? It's a meritocracy. And like a lot of things in life, it's timing and luck. It's timing and luck. It sucks that Trey Lance got hurt. It sucks that we couldn't see what he could have been his second year after getting his broken, his ankle broken against the Seahawks. Could he have taken the 49ers to the NFC Championship game? Maybe. Maybe he gets hurt the next game. Maybe he gets hurt later on in the season. Maybe he doesn't play that well and they miss the playoffs altogether. Maybe he plays so poorly that he gets benched for Garoppolo. You have no idea. And anybody out there that's saying, well, just because Purdy did it means that Lance can do it too. That's not the way this works, folks. That's not the way this works. How it's going to work now that we are going to be in a 40-plus day dry period of really no, there'll be news about the Niners, but there's going to be no other practices until training camp kicks off end of July. The coaches are going based on what they've seen from Brock previously, some with Lance, some with Darnold, and what they've what they've kind of seen in minicamp from these quarterbacks. But let's be clear. The quarterback work in minicamp is not a competition, guys. It, th- this is not going to prove, solidify, or maybe even lean the coaches one way or another regarding who's going to be the quarterback in what position come end of July. Because this is seven on seven, no pads, sometimes no lines, offensive or defensive. And these quarterbacks are throwing like 12 to 14 or 15 passes a day. I mean... And it's a two-day minicamp. So so what are you looking at? Like 25, 28 passes over a two-day mandatory minicamp period to make some sort of a judgment? You can't make a judgment. Even with OTAs, like people were keeping track of, and I read some of the stats, what Lance was doing, completion percentages, same with Darnold, same with Brandon Allen. It doesn't matter, guys. It doesn't matter. I know content, I'm, I'm using content with with you know, finger air quotes, content creators are looking to drum up clicks and whatnot. And it's boring. I I know I'm sometimes I talk in shades of beige. It's just drab. It's not sexy. It's not putting a tingle in anybody's bottom. But that's okay, because that's where we are. That's the reality of the 49ers quarterback situation as it stands first or second week of June. Now, going back to Purdy and his recovery. Let's all just practice some patience. Any report that's going to come out there in the next couple weeks of where Purdy or is or isn't at, it really doesn't matter, guys. It's not going to matter until end of July. And even then, I would rather be pleasantly surprised by Purdy if he earns it. And it look, it sounds like at least now he has earned it based on past performance. If Purdy earns being the starter week one, I'm all for it. But if he is in any way still compromised, I would rather be pleasantly surprised by him starting, but still have the mindset that I think he's going to miss time. I think he may miss the first couple weeks. There's no signs or indications pointing to that. But for those of you that for, that follow the 49ers, you know, as much as I do or close to it or even more, you know that the medical staff has been just as accurate as a weather man or weather woman, a weather person the past couple of years when it's when it comes to when 49er players are coming back from injuries or if they are sounding too optimistic and they're not downplaying injuries enough. There's something to be said for transparency when it comes to injuries because Lynch and Shanahan seem to be transparent about everything else. But when it comes to injuries, they do paint the most rosy or crimson and gold color picture out there. I will believe it when I see it. 
but it's much better than hearing. He needed to have another procedure because something didn't take, obviously, right? So a couple mini camp notes just that I thought were interesting reading multiple reports. Defensive end Kerry Hyder made a beautiful anticipatory interception of Trey Lance dropping into a passing lane, tipping the ball, intercepting it, and returning it for a touchdown. Now, conspiracy theorists, am I saying this because it's an anti-Lance thing and I'm pro, again, I'm not pro Purdy. I'm pro best quarterback as judged by Shanahan and the offensive coaches to start the year. It was just an impressive play by Hyder. One of the highlights of mandatory minicamp to the point that the entire defensive team players on the field and on the bench came out to rush Hyder after he returned it for a touchdown. Cause you don't see defensive linemen show that kind of anticipation or hands. Cause you know that Lance wasn't throwing it. It wasn't a lollipop throw. And I've actually read that of Lance's 106 pass attempts in the pros, five of them have been tipped already. That's what less than 5%, a shade under 5%, not a ton, but for someone that's, you know, six, three, six, four, you would correlate tipped passes with shorter quarterbacks. Maybe something for, for Lance to work on with a uh, better overhand delivery. Maybe he can minimize that moving forward. Free agent defensive end Cleveland Farrell brought in from the Raiders, sacked Sam Darnold three times on nine dropbacks, but he was going against an undrafted free agent tackle. But that's better than not getting to him. You might as well abuse and beat the players that are not as talented as you are, Cleveland Farrell, so good for you. Cornerback Sam Womack, second-year corner and undrafted free agent to Sean Jamison out of Texas, I believe, uh, provided great coverage over the two uh, minicamp sessions. Running back Jordan Mason seemed to look slimmer, faster. Getting more reps with Eli Mitchell out with an undisclosed injury. It's starting already, Niner fans. Injuries, and yeah, yeah, mini camps, even though they're not as physical as training camp, you're going to get injured, but Eli Mitchell needs to, if your best ability is availability, you got to be available, man, or else you may not be the number two running back um, come training camp or when the season starts. And Mason was seen catching Multiple passes, and we're going to get more into that later on. Probable starting right tackle Colton McKivitz looked solid in pass protection against Drake Jackson and Kerry Hyder. No slouches. So good early signs. Does it mean he's the starter? Do you Are you going to see headlines? McKivitz dominates in OT in, in mandatory minicamp. Penciled as a starter. No. Doesn't mean that. He's projected as the starter given who he's competing against, but nothing certain, nothing certain. Now, some workouts that came in during uh, minicamp, a few wide receivers uh, are working out or have worked out. Not sure if they've gotten um, an invite to camp. If they do, they're going to have to release somebody. They did work out quarterback Jack Cohn, most formerly of the XFL's San Antonio Brahmas. He was also in college with Wisconsin and had one year with Notre Dame, a good year with Notre Dame. So the 49ers, whether it's a camp arm or someone that they might be eyeing up for the practice squad, uh, again, Jack Cohn, I, I, you know, not sure yet if he has gotten an invite. One signing they did make, the 49ers signed defensive lineman, essentially a defensive end, Daryl Johnson, formerly of the Seahawks, to their 90-man training camp roster. They waived wide receiver, undrafted freedom wide receiver Shea Wyatt. Uh, Johnson was formerly a seventh-round pick of the Bills in 2019. So another piece for training camp, another defensive end, another possible practice squad candidate, always bringing in players on the D-line. So Debo Samuel actually sat down with Kyle Shanahan to review his 2022 tape, and Debo did not mince words. His quote was, oh, it was awful. Every aspect. And while he may be a little hard on himself, I mean, the, num the numbers somewhat bear it out. Last season, he had 56 receptions, 632 yards, and two receiving touchdowns. On the ground, 42 rushes, 232 yards, and three touchdowns. And that was over 13 games. He did miss a few due to injury. And that's coming off of 2021, his breakout year, 77 receptions, 1,405 yards, and six touchdowns through the air. So more than double the receiving production, 59 rushes, 365 yards, and eight touchdowns 
through 16 games. So he did miss a game in 2021. Uh, 130 yards more, you know, rushing in 2021, but he did have 17 more carries. You know, going into 2021, that was the summer of the contract dispute of Debo scrubbing any 49er mentions from his social media, asking that he wanted to be traded, admitted that he came in a little bit out of shape. Um, so that did hurt 2022. And of course, when players are on a contract year, NFL, MLB, NHL, and especially NBA, you know you're going to get their best out of them to get that paycheck. And Debo came in in not the best shape leading into 2022. But here's another quote from Debo. Me and Kyle had a long meeting the other day. We watched tape. We talked about it. We put it behind us and just going through the tape and just look at how sluggish and how bad it looked on tape. Like I said, just reflecting on last offseason, it kind of played a big role in that. I'll never put nothing like that back on tape again. Which is great to know because he's got two years until his next contract. By then, he'll be about 30 years old. And who knows what the wear and tear of, of playing you know, receiver and, and somewhat um, running back is going to do for him. But it's good to know that he has a different mindset and a different outlook on, on coming into camp in shape going into 2023. So now a few more um, pro football focus rankings. These are going to be overall rankings. So at running back, McCaffrey came in number three behind Cleveland's Nick Chubb and Tennessee's Derrick Henry. And this, it seems like the ratings were solely rushing, looking at a running back purely as a running back, not as an all-purpose back that McCaffrey is. And here's the quote from Pro Football Focus. If you heavily weigh receiving ability into where a back should be ranked in an exercise like this, McCaffrey would probably be number one. His 92.6 receiving grade was the best at the position last season, and it marked his fourth season with an elite grade in that category. Rushing-wise, McCaffrey didn't have a bad season. He averaged 4.5 yards per rush. But running backs in like a Chubb, like a Henry, who are workhorses, who are going to get the 20 to 25 carries a game, the wear down the defense, and really get that breakaway run in the third or fourth quarter to, I don't want to say pad their stats, but help their yards per carry in this type of calculation is going to be ranked higher than McCaffrey and McCaffrey's third. It's not like he's 10th. He's third and he's going to be the number one fantasy running back <laughs> in uh, fantasy football this upcoming season. As for tight ends, George Kittle came in third, which feels about right. And here was the quote. If Kittle was fed as heavily as the top tight ends in the NFL, his numbers would rival Travis Kelsey's of the chiefs, uh, or even Mark Andrews of the Ravens. Alas, he's played like a traditional inline tight end and has to compete with several top-tier weapons on the Niners for targets in their offense. Kittle's 87.8 receiving grade ranks second over the last two years, and he is an absolute monster with the ball in his hands with 30 missed tackles over that same time. So again, Niner fans, if you're going to always prefer your players to be ranked first, third ain't that bad, especially how much he's asked to stay in and block for running uh, the ball. I think getting another tight end, uh, whether it's going to be Braden Willis or Cameron Latou, or if it remains uh, someone like a Ross Dwelly to take some heat off of Kittle, I think the amount of time he's on the field should decrease as he is getting older, as he is asked to do more than just run routes like a Travis Kelsey is. The blocking does take a toll on the body, right? So his numbers may actually even dip in the next year or two, but if that means it's prolonging his career, I'm totally, totally for it. Wide receivers, this felt a little high to me. Debo was ranked 10th. And here's the quote from Pro Football Focus, arguably the most unique receiver on this list. Samuel is so effective running the ball that it tends to overshadow how good he is in conventional ways as a receiver. For his career, Samuel averages 2.29 yards per route run and has caught 43.4% of contested targets. He has broken 128 tackles on 223 catches, and that's before you get to the threat he poses as a rusher. He is one of the most dynamic threats in the game. Agreed. Now, I guess they're taking his 2021 numbers into consideration where he was nearly at 1,800 combined yards, whereas 
Last year, he was about 860 combined yards. So they're anticipating a bounce back year from Debo. The versatility is absolutely fantastic. Having McCaffrey here, hopefully a healthy Eli Mitchell and getting even more production from Mason, Ty Davis Price, and or if an undrafted free agent running back makes the team should lessen Debo's role as a runner. And he actually, it's just, he did run 17 times fewer in 2022 than he did in 2021. So that rush production will probably, you know, take a dip. But number 10 overall as a wide receiver, and again, I know we are factoring in his versatility, to me seems high. Do I think he's top 20? Absolutely. At 10, that does feel a little bit high. Brandon Ayuk actually came in at 20. That feels a little high to me as well. Do I think he's like a top 30, 35 receiver? Yes. Do I think he's an ascending receiver? Yes. Uh, and I'm not downplaying it. I'm not throwing cold water on, on either of these receivers or them as a tandem. Not at all. Surprised about how, about how high they rank. But if this is a prelude to them being top, both top 20 receivers, top 15 receivers, I will absolutely take it. Now, defensive tackles, Javon Hargrave ranked 13th. Eric Armstead ranked 15th. Great to hear. Cornerback overall, Charvarius Ward ranked 11th in the league. And surprisingly, offensive guard Spencer Buford, although he didn't start the full season, ranked number 32 of offensive guards, which when you look into that, that's literally the the top half of the league, right? 32 teams. Um, each team starts two guards, so that's 64. So even in, you know, 50 to 70% duty, uh, rotating in with Daniel Brunskill last year, still ranked in the top half of the NFL. Now, last but not least for the 49ers section was super happy to hear this. Running back coach Anthony Lynn is getting all running backs involved in the passing game more in practice because he does not want there to be such a significant drop-off when McCaffrey comes off the field. And here's the quote from Coach Anthony Lynn. You don't want to have two offenses. You don't want to have Christian come out for a water break and have the next guy come in and have to call different plays. So our guys have to evolve and do more in the passing game. Thank you, Anthony Lynn. Thank you, Kyle Shanahan, if you had any part of that. If you are a friend of the show and have been listening, you know this is a drum I've been banging since the the tail end of of last season. McCaffrey came in midway-ish through. The last month plus of the season and beyond, I've been saying, how hard is it to to catch a football? You know, Maybe they are not the nuanced route runner that Christian McCaffrey is, but if you've been playing football nearly your whole life, you know how to catch a football. And you don't have to be the savvy route runner. You don't have to line up wide and run a slant or an in and out or a fade down the sideline like McCaffrey ran uh, against the Rams in Los Angeles when he scored three touchdowns, one rushing, one passing, and one receiving. Just be a threat. Or maybe not even a threat, just be an option, just be a viable option for Purdy, Lance, Darnold, Brandon Allen, whoever the quarterback's going to be, to keep the defense honest. Because if you remember back to games, when McCaffrey came out, and if it was Mason or Price, because Mitchell was hurt for a lot of the year, you knew either it was a running play or the running back was going to have no part in the pass pattern. And staying in and and helping with pass protection is important as well, but you want to keep the defense completely honest, McCaffrey or not. So I just pulled some yards per carries for the five running backs uh, behind McCaffrey, three on the roster. Well, all five are on the roster technically, but two are undrafted rookie free agents. So Eli Mitchell in his pro career, 4.9 yards per carry. He has 22 receptions averaging 6.5 yards per catch. In college, all four years at Louisiana, on the ground, 6.2 yards per carry. In total, 49 receptions, a 12.2 yard per reception average. Jordan Mason at Georgia. Well, actually, Jordan Mason, his rookie year in San Francisco, six yards per carry, no receptions. (laughs) In college, four years at um, Georgia Tech, 5.2 5.2 yards per carry, 
26 receptions in total, 7.6 yards per catch. Ty Davis-Price, last year, rookie out of LSU, 2.9 yards per carry, no receptions. In college, three years at LSU, 4.6 yards per carry, 28 receptions in total, 6.6 yards per catch. Now, there are two undrafted rookie free agents, uh, Kalen Laybourne out of Marshall. He was a JUCO transfer. His one year at Marshall ran for over 1,500 yards, five yards per attempt rushing, 16 receptions that one year for 7.3 yards per catch. And then Ronald Awat, five years at UTEP, one year he was actually a cornerback, 4.8 yards per carry, 17 receptions, and he averaged 13.8 yards per catch. So obviously these players can do it. And even if they didn't show it again in the pros or in college, to date, I keep going back to, you've been playing football all your life. You've been playing catch with coaches, siblings, brothers, cousins, friends, whatever. You can catch the friggin' football. Mason and Price, no catches last year, very telling. Um, but they've shown that they can do it in college. You know, Mason over four years averaged about 6.5 yards, or 6.5 catches per year. We're not asking for 50 catches out of whoever the number two or three running back's going to be, but in the 20, 20 to 30 range, I think is very reasonable to ask, right? Price caught 28 passes over three years. That's about nine yards, nine catches per year. And then the one year at Marshall, 16 catches for Laybourne and about four receptions per season for Awat at UTEP. Again, though, going back to the coaching staff understanding how much more that they can get from the running back position when it comes to catching the football. And it shouldn't all rest on McCaffrey. And you want to lean on Eli Mitchell more, but he's been hurt quite a bit. And behind him, the next two players up did not have a catch last year in the NFL. Let's work on that. Let's work on that. Again, you don't have to be a threat. Just be an option out and a viable one out of the backfield. So that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast coming up next, the plus section where I'm going to talk about game three of the NBA finals, Denver winning, taking a two games to one leader. We're going to talk pitcher Jacob deGrom, unfortunately hurt Tommy John surgery upcoming the NBA salary disparity among teams, why there is no salary cap. We're going to talk It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and a moron that decided to get leg lengthening surgery for over $100,000. You don't want to miss any of this. Stay right here. It's plus time. So to kick off the plus section, I think it would be fun to remind people out there and most people that are listening are, or hopefully are still listening, are 49er fans And I'm a couple days, I'm almost a week late on this, but as of this past June 2nd, 2023, that marked 10,000 days since the Dallas Cowboys played in an NFC championship game. Well done. Well done, Jerry Jones and your litany of coaches and everybody that just can't get you over the hump. Fantastic. You know, it's crazy when you think about it. Since then, the Panthers have been to an NFC championship game. The Jaguars have been to an AFC championship game. The Cardinals have been to a Super Bowl. I mean, not to say that you could, you know, you should be able to stumble into an NFC championship game, but Dallas has generally fielded some very, very talented teams, and they just could not get over the hump for a while, you know, after the triplets of Aikman, Irvin, and Emmett Smith retired, but they have had good teams since between, you know, with Romo and obviously now with Dak Prescott, Drew Bledsoe, and they just haven't gotten there. And I'm hoping that me saying this, because I believe in karma, is not the year now that the Cowboys make it. But for other 49er fans out there, obviously one of the teams that we as the fandom hate, nice round number, 10,000 years without an appearance in the championship game. So Football transitioning to NBA. The finals, game three was on last night. Denver beat Miami in Miami, 109-94. This was a close game until the mid-third quarter. Then Denver started pulling away, and they led by 14 going into the fourth. There are some concerning stats coming out of this game 
if you're a Miami Heat fan. Field goal percentage overall, 51% to 37% in favor of Denver. The three-point shot, neither team shot well. Miami actually had the edge here, 31% to 28. You get into turnovers, Denver turned the ball over 14 times, Miami only four, and they still lost by 15. They protected the basketball, just couldn't score it. Still lost by 15. And rebounds, maybe the most devastating or troublesome one of all, 58 to 35 in favor of Denver. Now, points only Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo had over 10 points for the Heat. The point disparity wasn't much better for the uh, Denver Nuggets, but they did have two players score a triple-double. Uh, Jokic went 32 points, 21 boards, and 10 rebounds. Jamal Murray, 34 points, 10 rebounds. or ten. <laughs> Jokic, 32 points, 21 rebounds, 10 assists. Murray, 34 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists. Sorry about that. Jokic became the first player in finals history with a 30-20-10 triple-double. Think about all the great top five Mount Rushmore type players that have played in the finals in NBA history. Jokic is the first and it's the first time in any NBA game, regular season or postseason, that teammates have had a 30 point or more triple double. You got to see ridiculous history last night, ridiculous efficiency obviously from both players and being all over the court, not just scoring, but rebounding and assisting as well. The talk was, you know, going into game three, make Jokic a scorer, not a passer. Well, oops, in game three, he did both. Game two, he had 40 points, 40 plus points and only four assists. This is where Miami does not want Jokic to be. 30 plus points and uh, 10 plus assists. So that's the worst of both worlds if you're a Miami Heat fan. Now, Jimmy Butler coming out and saying, you know, we've got to come out next game with more energy and effort, and that's correctable. That is on us as a group. So you don't want to say that, you know, Denver can't play better because they can, because really only Jokic and Murray went off. Everybody else had, I think there was only two other players in double figures. Miami can play better. Miami, you know, if Miami gets out-hustled, they're going to lose most games, especially to a team that's as, as talented as the Denver Nuggets are. Game four is Friday night. Surprisingly, that they didn't wait until like Sunday. I guess they didn't want to have that big of a break between finals games. Game four in Miami. Miami looking to even the series up 2-2. Just the first half went the way I thought it would. Obviously, Miami uh, or Denver uh, came out uh, much more aggressive. They were obviously distributing the basketball really well. They were getting Murray and Jokic involved early and often. And then they were just beating Miami to the ball. The hustle plays, the rebounds to almost, to almost go two to one in an NBA game in total rebounds is crazy because it's not like Miami does not have players that can crash the boards. Miami's got to ratchet up the intensity. Again, if, if you're at somewhat, somewhat of a talent deficit, you have to make it up in other areas. And if you are not making it up in a dominant fashion in other areas, they're going to be losing games such as this. This is a must-win game for Miami. Make no mistake about it. They do not want to go back to Denver down 3-1. Although if they do, please, 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 Denver... And please, 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 NBA, allow, if they're even asking to, I've said it last podcast, allow the Nuggets to wear their 80s uniforms with the Tetris-like colored buildings, skyscrapers. It would look awesome. Go retro night for a potential game-clinching, uh, or finals-clinching game five, should Denver get the win in game four. But much more to come there. Let's transition from NBA to Major League Baseball. Jacob deGrom, pitcher of the Texas Rangers, will need to have Tommy John surgery. He will miss the rest of this season and probably half or more 
of the 2024 season. He is 34 years old. Many of you may know, longtime pitcher for the New York Mets, left in the offseason, signed a five-year, $185 million contract with the Rangers. So you're talking $37 million a year. And I think a lot of fans were kind of split on the whole DeGrom thing as it was happening in the offseason in real time. To give that kind of contract to a player that had Tommy John surgery already in 2010 when he was in the minors, and the amount of games that he missed the two seasons up uh, up to free his free agency year gave the Mets pause, uh, and it gave even Steve Cohen pause with the amount of money that he's been spending left and right. It doesn't make the Mets feel justified. Nobody wanted to see this, you know, whether you're you know, a Mets fan, a competitive fan of, of the Texas Rangers. You don't want to see someone have to go through this again. The Rangers, though, do have a clause in the contract, the Tommy John clause, that gives the Rangers a sixth-year club option worth between 20 and $37 million, depending on awards voting and awards voting, excuse me, and innings pitched totals. When I mentioned before going into free agency, in total now, Jacob deGrom only has 32 starts if you combine the 2021, 2022, and 2023 seasons. He made six starts this year for the Rangers, so that means 26 starts his last two years with the Mets, which is a huge reason why, no matter how dominant he is when he is pitching, the cliche, your best ability is availability, and he has not been that available. And 2021 to 2023 represents DeGrom's 30 ages, 33 to 35 seasons in the majors. Now, all is not lost. Justin Verlander had Tommy John surgery at 38, came back with the Astros, won the Cy Young, and funny enough, signed with the Mets. In the offseason, and I think he, his record right now is 2-4 and four with an over-4 ERA. When he was with the Astros, his first year coming off Tommy John surgery, winning the Cy Young, his ERA was, I think, 1.87 or something very close to that. So wishing the best for Jacob deGrom. It is, he is not having the surgery that Brock Purdy had. It is not internal brace. It is the full-blown Tommy John surgery. Usually, from what I've read, the second surgery has a bit longer of a rehab than the first. Then again, his first surgery was 13 years ago. Maybe things have happened with the surgery or with the rehabilitation 13 years later that can speed that up for him, but he is going to miss at least half of next season. So Major League Baseball read an interesting article wanted to share with you about team salary uh disparities across the league. And as you know, baseball is a sport that does not have a salary cap. It has a luxury tax, much like the NBA does. Last year, 2022, $226 million worth in salary separated the Dodgers and the Orioles. And that was a record high. This year, the Mets said, hold my beer. And $299 million worth in salary separates the Mets and the A's this year. Obviously, a new high surpassing last year by $73 million. Now, the A's have actively, the past couple of years, been doing everything to get out of Oakland. And they are headed toward, to Los Angeles. I'm sorry, Las Vegas, more than likely. They are one of three teams this season under $100 million in payroll. The Mets are one of 14 teams over $200 million in payroll, and they're the only team in baseball over $300 million. Now, the people that are pro-no salary cap are going to point to these performance data points. In 2022, there were a record four teams with 100 wins or more. Actually, this is going to be the why there should be a salary cap after that, I'll get to the, the quote-unquote equity uh, in baseball. So there are four, a record four teams with 100 wins or more. Those teams average $226 million worth in payroll and a record four 100 loss teams uh, last year, and their payroll was in, on average less than $87 million. So that could actually <laughs> it could be a stat that can kind of go both ways. 
In the past five years, the top six payroll teams averaged 91 wins. So these are definitely the haves. But the people that are saying the parity is there in baseball will point to the fact that since 2000, so 22 seasons or 23 seasons, 15 teams, half of Major League Baseball have won the World Series. And only five teams have won more than one World Series. The Red Sox, the San Francisco Giants, the Yankees, the Cardinals, and the Houston Astros. And since 2000, you've still had the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Angels, the Marlins win a World Series. But since 2010, now we're going back 13 seasons, only the Rays and the Royals have won the World Series with a bottom half payroll. So getting to the mountaintop has been difficult, but if you're looking at playoffs, since 2015, 28 out of the 30 teams in baseball have made the playoffs. Since 2010, all 30 teams have made it. So it's how you define parity. If you're defining parity as getting to the dance, but having no chance to dance with the prom queen, then yes, there is parity in baseball. It is unsettling, though, the number of wins, you know, the top five years the top payrolls have had versus the bottom payrolls. So you still need to have a good enough record to get to the dance. And whether you're dancing with your ugly date because you're a bad team or you're able to steal a dance with maybe the cute but nerdy... Um, student council president, or you, you know, you go balls out and you, you know, you try to dance with the prom queen and actually win the world series. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. And the payroll disparity is going to only increase. Both sides have said there will never be a salary cap for financial reasons. And the obvious one or ones, because there's two audiences here, because it'll hurt player salaries and it'll hurt owner's revenues. Neither side wants that. But here was an interesting quote from the article. So the Orioles are having a pretty de decent season this year. So their success stands out. But will a team such as the Orioles be able to sustain a window of winning the same way the Dodgers, Astros, or Yankees have? Or will they go the route of the Tampa Bay Rays in which trading players before they make too much money through arbitration is the norm. If there's not going to be a salary cap, I think baseball needs to if, at least figure out this one thing, that if there are going to be salary dumps from teams that are bad or that are not competing, they want to get rid of a, say, G Giancarlo Stanton when he was traded from the Marlins to the Yankees, then you need to give up commensurate salary or a percentage close to that salary the way that they do it in the NBA. Because you can't just sign a player to a 10-year, you know, whatever it was for John Carlos Stanton, $250 million contract. He probably got more than that. I'm just making this up off the top of my head. And then after a couple of years where he served his purpose with ticket sales or the performance of the team is now bad and you want to sell him or trade him, it's, it's essentially it's selling, selling him to a, a high market, high value team that can afford him and just get cheap prospects prospects back prospects back excuse me yeah that works for your model Miami Marlins and that's why Derek Jeter left he's like I can't I can't be part of this ownership group we have no chance you know the rays are the exception to the rule they they keep going through the cycle of being good being good being good maybe they have a down year sell off trade off some players but they're being good being good being good again being the GM of the Tampa Rays is a much more award-worthy position than being Brian Cashman, GM of the Yankees. And yes, I know the Steinbrenners now have instituted some sort of cap that they won't go above, but he knows he more or less can sign and or get any player he wants. If you're the GM of the Royals or the Rays, do you can you do that? No, you can't. So we'll see how much these small market teams can actually stay in the mix. And if in any, at any point in the future, there will never, ever be a salary cap 
in baseball, but maybe they can do things that can level the playing field a little bit more for teams that are trying to sell off high-priced players and just wanting peanuts in return. All right, transitioning now to TV. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia kicked off its 16th season last night, starting on the channel FX. Now it's on FXX. And what started out really as a cult comedy has turned into the longest-running live-action sitcom in U.S. history. The show started out in... 2005 was filmed um, pseudo famously on a camcorder for a couple hundred dollars. They, the creators, uh, Rob McElhaney, Glenn Howerton, and Charlie Day, pitched it to FX, wound up getting, you know, uh, a season out of it. And then in season two, they brought in Danny DeVito because FX executives at the time thought it needed a little bit more star power. And it's. <laughs> interesting to say or think how much star power Danny DeVito had in, I guess, 2006. Um, but in some ways save the show. And essentially if you haven't watched this show at all, it's about, uh, four people, Rob McElhaney, Glenn Howerton, Charlie Day, and Caitlin Olson who own a bar in Philadelphia. And they are really just horrible human beings. They're, you know, they get into situations or they concoct schemes that when they break it down in their mind is really, you know, makes sense and logical, but they're just always doing heinous things to people, not people you want to model yourself or have your kids look up to as role models, but as a comedy, it is, at the time when I first saw it, so unique in how they delivered dialogue. They sometimes were talking over each other. It was at a, a fast-paced kind of frenetic type of pace, the way the show would move from scene to scene or just conversations occur. And it's, I saw an article recently that It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia averages 173.6 words per minute, which is by far the most of any show of any genre in the United States. And if you want to say, you know, <laughs> that some of it is just kind of like gibberish or improv uh, I definitely can see them improving some things, and, and I've seen outtakes and bloopers on how they handle certain situations. Um, but it just kind of adds to the humor of it. Um, Danny DeVito's character introduced, I mentioned in season two, as the father to um, Glenn Howerton and Caitlin Olsen's characters, and they are siblings. Uh, Charlie Day plays, you know, almost like the janitor in a bar. Uh, he's illiterate. Um, he just doesn't thinks about things the right way. Rob McElhaney's character actually came out as gay maybe four seasons ago. And it's always sunny in Philadelphia seems to reinvent itself season after season. They made a season finale of, of Rob McElhaney's character, Mac coming out to his father as gay in prison. He wound up Rob McElhaney wound up putting on like a dance performance with someone else that was ridiculously beautifully choreographed. Um, and it was just something that was so, such a different tone for a comedy series. Um, cause it was, it was a dramatic, almost like a ballet kind of rhythmic dance type of thing. Um, to gain awareness for his character or at least to let his, his father and, and others know that, that he was gay. But, you know, beyond that, you know, the things that they are doing, you know, episodes where they're, they're, you know, when the economy was bad in the late two thousands, they were purchasing gasoline, putting it in their cars and going door to door, trying to sell the gasoline when the prices went up, um, going to banks, trying to get money, trying to get a loan for the gasoline by drawing charts of the economy with women with huge breasts on it. Meanwhile, they're talking to a woman and they thought they would be talking to a guy. Uh, there's, Going, I think the the hardest I've ever laughed in my life was one episode where Dennis, uh, Glenn Howerton's character and Danny DeVito's character go to an orgy, and they wind up walking through this dilapidated building, uh, apartment building complex, and and Glenn Howerton's character is asking, you know, Danny DeVito's character's name is Frank. Like Frank, 
I thought we were, we were going to an orgy. I thought these things happen in these like pristine, beautiful mansions, not in like some rundown place like this. And Danny DeVito's response was pretty logical. It was, no, you think you want all these people banging on all your nice white furniture? Like that doesn't make much sense. You know, you'd rather do it here. And it kind of stopped Glenn Howerton's character in his tracks. He's like, oh yeah, no, that kind of does make sense. And, you know, they're wearing, they're each wearing like a Halloween mask because it's like an eyes wide shut type of thing where you're not supposed to see who you are. And they walk into the room and there's just all older, out of shape, fat, ugly people sitting around eating because they noticed it was a buffet. So Danny DeVito walks up to like these four aluminum trays with sternos heating it up. Then they just start having a random conversation in front of this buffet at an orgy where no one's having sex. Everyone's ugly. Glenn Howardin's character is getting aggravated. He's like, Frank, what did you bring me to? This isn't... This isn't an orgy. It's like some sort of like half nude buffet party. What's good? Then Danny DeVito takes off his mask and that gets Glenn Howard and aggravated. They're still arguing over why there's no sex going on. And just out of the blue, Danny DeVito goes, he picks up a piece of shrimp. He goes, do you think this shrimp is fresh or frozen? And then Glenn Howerton's character just flips out. It was just so absurd. Even just the idea of having like a shitty buffet at an orgy with a bunch of ugly people that I was laughing so hard. I, I woke my wife up. She thought I was having an asthma attack. And I know that's just one example, but it's, it is such a, a bonkers out there comedy. They've gotten a little bit more brazen with the swearing. They dropped, actually there was a, a two episode premiere last night and they dropped the F bomb once in each episode. And I guess maybe after 10 o'clock on cable, maybe you can, but regardless of that, after 16 seasons, 18 years, from 2005 to 2023, um, a show that just kept up the comedy. And, like, you know, they've had some seasons interspersed where, you know, it hasn't been as funny as some of, like, maybe the first 10 seasons or so. Um, but reading last night after online, after the, the first two episodes, they started doing a podcast the last year or two, and I think... What people are saying is it's helped the creators, Rob, Glenn, Charlie, and Caitlin, kind of go back to their roots and understanding what made this show such a cult classic. And it's a show that has surprisingly avoided cancel culture because of the things that they've talked about when they, if it's whether, you know, they've had episodes where uh, Mac, Rob McElhinney's character is dating um, a trans woman and he accidentally like punches her in the face and two people saw that and like, well, or are you just beating up? Uh, did you just hit a woman? And he's like, no guys, it's okay. She has a dick. It's cool. She has a dick. And they're like, well, isn't that a hate crime instead? And they started like chasing him. They've done stuff with, um, blackface where one of the characters they were remaking, they were making lethal weapon six or seven and Rob McElhinney's character was playing Murtaugh, the, the Danny Glover character and wound up doing it in blackface. And I've, now that's one of the episodes that you can't really see anymore, but they did a correction in a subsequent season. They did like, I think lethal weapon seven or eight, where they actually hired the, the guys on the show, not that the producers, but the characters on the show brought in an African American person to play the Danny Glover character. So I think they realize when they misstep a little, a little bit because they do push the boundaries, but the fact, I guess the fact that it's on FXX, the fact that it's on 10 o'clock at night, the fact that it's not super ridiculously popular, but it has, a rabid fan base that just lives in and and swears by the show and I'm one of them I'm what I'm one of those people that it's really hard for me to laugh out loud at something that's funny like I'll smile or I'll chuckle but this is a show that like once or twice an episode there's just like a a hearty deep guttural laugh because it it is you have to just get your mindset into how ridiculous the show is and crass at times and if you can get by that, or if that's your thing, I can't figure out, you know, a better way to spend, you know, 30 minutes. And I have a bunch of episodes that I just absolutely love on um, DVR that I'll go to every so often because it, it's just that funny of a show. I think the only streaming platform you could watch it for, for free is on Hulu, but then I think you could pay for episodes on Apple Plus or Prime. Um, the seasons are short. The season is only, you know, eight eight episodes and a lot of other seasons have been 10 episodes or less. So getting to 16 seasons is impressive. But if you're comparing, you know, seasons back in the day, the eighties or nineties were 24 episodes, 20 to 24 episodes. So you're kind of getting half as much. I'm taking nothing away from this show. The fact that it had its odds stacked against them when they pitched the series, when the series was on FX, the type of humor, 
how against the grain it was compared to everything else that was out there and is still out there and it's still going strong. And think about where you've seen Danny DeVito most recently, Jersey Mike subs. He's not on that commercial without being as popular as he is on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, and kudos to him. Like he's in his mid seventies now. What they've had him do the past, you know, 15 years, you know, great. When he was in late fifties, early sixties, mid sixties, late sixties, got to give credit to Danny DeVito as an actor. He, he rolls with it. Um, and he, he just plays a great, just degenerate, you know, older guy. That's got a lot of money that just goes in with the rest of the characters on all these absurd uh, plots and plans. Such a great show. So FXX Wednesday nights at 10 Hulu. If you have, it, if you want to check out past episodes, or I'm sure you can watch some stuff on YouTube as well. Um, one of, if not my, my, one of my top three, if not my favorite, you know, comedy of all time. And last but not least from fictitious morons to a real life moron. If you did not see this because this was going through the Yahoo newsfeed, Brian Sanchez, and I can use his name because it was, it was news. It was on Yahoo public domain, right? Brian Sanchez, 33 years old of Georgia, six feet tall, did not like that his five foot 10 wife could almost look him in the eye. So he got leg lengthening surgery. Now, right off the bat, that's got to be an extremely healthy relationship, right? If you're six feet tall and you don't like the fact that you can't see clear over your wife's head. So because of that, he had leg lengthening surgery for over $100,000. Here was his quote as to why he did it, or, or one of the main reasons why. I started looking at my body and realized my legs were short. I'm broad, have long arms, and I'm wide, but my short legs make me look different. I almost look like a huge thumb. So... Now, the way he's describing himself, like you're, you're kind of thinking like a gorilla, like long arms, knuckle draggered. No, like he's six foot tall, Caucasian dude in good shape. But I guess his his legs were a little too short, you know, for his liking. Meanwhile, out of everything in his body, like much like a lot of people that go to the gym, you, he looks like an inverted triangle because it's all about the chest and the shoulders and the arms and the back and your legs are like toothpicks. So I don't know, I don't know if it's going to make you look more like Big Bird or less, but he traveled to Turkey to undergo two procedures. So what they ultimately do is they break the tibia and the fibula, the two main bones in the lower leg. They hollow out the tibia and they put a rod in. And as you're healing, the, as the patient you are to use an Allen wrench four times a day to extend the lengths of the rods in each leg. So I mentioned two procedures. You can only add between three or four inches at a time during a procedure. So, I mean, everything about this is bizarre, right? But if you want to nitpick, the fact that he could have had one procedure in bid 6.3 or 6.4 but he decided for two. And the first procedure was, I think, something like $37,000. And the next procedure was like 65. So I don't know why. I don't know why one is much more expensive than the other. But both combined over $100,000. And now he is 6'7". He's still in a wheelchair, at least by the by whenever that article was written and, and me reading it. So he was six foot tall. Now he's 6'7". So now he's like some sort of a monster. Six feet tall is a great height. Like I'm 5'9", 5'10". That's average-ish for a guy. Now, when you tack on like two or three extra inches and you're six feet tall and you're built, like this guy was an Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he had like a decent build to him. I, you don't need to look like some sort of a, I, I, I don't know, like like some sort of monster. I, I can't. And not like he's not an ugly person. He's not a hairy person, but he's just like now like disproportioned. And his legs are still like toothpicks. It's just a weird thing. Like I could find, and so could you, 
So many other things to spend $100,000 on versus leg lengthening procedure. But look it up. Brian Sanchez, 33 years old of Georgia, $100,000 leg, leg lengthening surgery. I've read something like this before where people like men that were like maybe 5'2", five, 5'3", five, have gotten this done to become, you know, 5'6", five, 5'7", six, five, because their, their height was really bothering them, like psychologically or emotionally. Maybe I can get behind that. But even then, that was like $40,000, $45,000, and it was just one procedure, which makes sense. It's about half of $100,000, but crazy, ridiculous. It's out there if you want to learn more about it. And if you want to go do it, you have to go overseas to Turkey to get the procedure done. That concludes today's episode of the podcast. I want to thank you for listening today. If you listened on Monday as well, I want to thank you for the double dip. Hope you all have a happy, healthy, and safe next couple days. The weekend, if you're in the Northeast like I am with the wonderful smoke clouds or just disgusting air that's rolling in from Canada. Stay indoors, be safe about that. And hopefully the next time we speak on either Monday or Tuesday for the next episode of the podcast, the weather will clear. But between now and then, NHL, Stanley Cup Finals, NBA Finals, at least one game of them, Game 5, um, Game 4 in Miami on Friday. Not sure if Game 5 is on Sunday or not. Uh, baseball obviously going on as well. So stay well. We will talk soon. Take care.